Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usniff. Today's guest is a, a new friend of mine, Dominic Combs, who is the founder and president of giving.org, G-V-N-G. He's been in the space of philanthropy and tech entrepreneurship for many years. I think of him as a disruptor in the space. He's really, in my view, trying to democratize philanthropy, which is still quite clubby and not always so easy to do as one might think. So with that, welcome to The Caring Economy, Dominic. Thank you very much, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for having me on. Did I give a fair introduction of, of your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my whole background has been in profit and purpose. I fundamentally believe those things can be aligned. And I think recently we've seen a convergence of that. But uh, certainly kind of 10 years ago when I really started my career, it was less common. And I actually struggled in the early days to find that convergence. Um, I, as I said, now I think it's prolific. But at the time, you know, you really had to make a decision. Do you want to be a quote unquote do-gooder and go into the nonprofit world? Or would you like to pursue, uh, you know, private transactions and profit and work in an industry that uh, may not necessarily align with your values? And I think that's changed significantly. But I, I really did start my career when those things were, uh, you know, very separated. Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Dominic. And I think um, we'll explore that during today's session. Why don't we first start with a little background about you? Can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about your life narrative? where you're born, how you were raised, uh, and how you got where you got, so to speak. Sure, absolutely. So um, I was actually born in Asia. I was born in Hong Kong. Um, a, a white Jewish guy living in Asia was a really interesting experience as a young man and uh, got to travel around Asia quite a bit, see different cultures, learn different languages, and really understand you know, just how big the world really is and, and the beauty of, of, of the world. And so I um, moved to London, England shortly thereafter as a young man and it was a fascinating experience because my grandfather actually um, started the largest consumer electronics company in Western Europe called Dixon's. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dixon's is now a publicly traded company with uh, 40,000 employees, 2,000 stores, and an $8 billion market cap. But at the time, you know, when my grandfather was very young, he kind of dropped out of high school and he was 16 years old to work at his father's singular store called Dixon's Cameras in Edgeware and grew that into this uh, behemoth of a company. And so I sort of had a front row seat to watching my grandfather grow this amazing company. And it really taught me the value of what an entrepreneur could do, um, even without a formal education. I mean, as I said, he was in high school, doesn't have a college degree or anything like that, and has risen to this unbelievable stature as a businessman. He was uh, knighted by the Queen of England and then inducted into the House of Lords and uh, where, he is, where he sits today. So it was just a fascinating experience to grow up under that and see what an entrepreneur could do. And now he's a, he's a major philanthropist and has given not only millions of dollars, but countless you know, hours of his time and energy into making the UK a better place for all of its citizens mm -hmm. and, and being highly philanthropic. And my, grandfather, my grandmother, I should say, which is also quite relevant, was also um, awarded by the Queen um, for her services to the UK charitable sector. She worked to reform hospitals all throughout the UK. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, come from a very philanthropic family that wants to give back. So that was an interesting experience. And then I ended up in the United States, going to middle school and high school in uh, California, and then back east to New York City, where I did undergraduate at NYU and my master's degree at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because I had always, as I said, wanted to do something in profit and purpose. And yet I ended up on Wall Street. Um, because I think, you know, Columbia is a feeder school there. And so I ended up um, 
uh, first I was doing, uh, uh, I was at Citibank Smith Barney, and then I was at HSBC. I spent a small amount of time there and really didn't like it, you know, just found that it wasn't aligned to what I wanted to be do. I wasn't passionate about it. And so I decided as a young man where my passions were would be best served in public policy. I was pretty naive, uh, to say the least. So I went into public policy thinking I was going to help people. I became a political uh, advisor to the Afghanistan ambassador um, for a short amount of time, which was fascinating. And then I um, became a, an associate in the United States Senate um, in the chairman's office of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Orrin Hatch. And that was a really interesting position working under, under the chief trade counsel, Everett Eisenstadt. And basically my job there was to enforce or I should say oversee the Department of Labor's um, enforcement of human rights provisions in US free trade agreements. So for example, when we, in our free trade agreements, there are provisions that we put in there that say, you know, for example, crops cannot be picked by forced labor or, you know, women that have been, um, uh, uh, you know, beaten or sexually trafficked minors. And so the Department of Labor oversees that. And we, of course, at Congress oversee the Department of Labor. And so it was a fascinating position. I got to meet a lot of my political heroes. I got to see how Congress really works, which was a sad state of affairs. And, um, you know, and, and did that for a couple of years. And then after, you know, I realized, you know, it was the worst of both worlds, as I like to jokingly tell people, I was making almost no money because staffers get paid very little. And I wasn't really helping anybody because politics at that level is very sort of quid pro quo, a lot of fundraising, a lot of private closed door meetings, not a lot of public policy actually going on. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm not getting paid much. I'm not helping anybody. I was like, this is a disaster. I need to do something else and um, ended up uh, coming out to California. And that's where my career in sort of philanthropy and profit and purpose really converged when I met a guy named Trevor Nielsen, who um, had just basically started this company called Global Philanthropy Group, which I think, you know, I would humbly say was the premier philanthropic strategy consulting firm in the country. And um, it was a small boutique firm, and it was myself and a couple other folks there. And, and, you know, collectively, we grew that company over the course of four or five years to um, eventually get acquired by Charity Network, uh, which was um, owned by billionaire Todd Wagner, who is Mark Cuban's business partner from the broadcast.com IPO. Mm -hmm. And Charity Network had acquired some other companies in the philanthropic tech space, and they acquired Global Philanthropy Group. And uh, you know, while I was there, I worked on the philanthropic campaigns, initiatives, and nonprofits for a wide variety of corporate, celebrity, and high net worth individuals. Um, so I used to work with Forrest Whitaker on his foundation. Uh, we worked with Eva Longoria. I worked with Eva Longoria. I did some work on Kobe Bryant's foundation, Miley Cyrus's foundation. We did some really interesting work with uh, Avril Lavigne, also Eileen Getty from the Getty family. Worked a little bit on Howard Buffett's foundation. Uh, we worked with Facebook, uh, Gucci, American Apparel. I mean, you name it, you know, we worked with them. And um, I, I did a lot of the philanthropic strategy for the Rand Corporation, which was interesting. So really got a good sense of philanthropy and developed, a, a, I think, a, a strong expertise in that sector. And network, yeah. And a great network and got to know some fantastic people that I'm still friends with today. I mean, I still, you know, do some work with Forrest Whitaker today. In fact, I just... Uh, became an advisor to his foundation a couple of days ago. And, um, yes. you know, and, and so it's, it was an interesting experience and that's what led me to giving and I'll, I'll get into that later, but that kind of brings us to today. Yeah. So uh, going back to your, your, your younger days, your grandfather, Stanley Combs, Baron Combs, um, you know, that's, that's quite a position of privilege to come up with a, a family of title and means, but 
yet you've all seemingly kept the work ethic and wanted to define your own space. How, how did you manage to do that versus being um, a silver spoon in the mouth sort of um, trustbarian, for lack of a better word? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the people I grew up with were like that. And I, for whatever reason, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is. My brother and I were always horrified by that. The idea of growing up, uh, not working for anything, getting everything given to you and developing no work ethic, no resilience mm -hmm. is just a, it, it's anathema to me and to my brother. I give him credit too. And so neither of us, you know, we never got into drugs. We never smoked. We never, you know, we never got into that whole party scene of, of sort of wealthy young kids or, or the kids of wealthy parents. We never got into any of that. And mm -hmm. we were both effectively straight A students in school. We worked really hard. Um, and, and that continued through college. I mean, I, I was fortunate to graduate, you know, magna cum laude from NYU and, uh, you know, go on to Columbia University, which is, you know, a great university. And, and it, it was really about work ethic. I think that, I think that's sort of in my family. I think my grandfather kind of demonstrates that. And I think it is intrinsic because I can tell you that had I wanted to be a trust fund uh, kid, I could have been. I absolutely could have been. Um, and I could have rested on my laurels and I could have name dropped my grandfather all over town. And I never did that. I mean, there's people that I've known today for quite literally 15 years who, who, who I've never mentioned, you know, who don't know my background, don't know my last name. And, you know, it'll come up in conversation. And they'll say, well, what? you've never told me that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's and I'm like, yeah, it's not relevant. You know, I mean, I, I don't bring it up very much. I mean, here I brought it up because it's part of my story. But so, yeah, I, I think... It's just about work ethic and the way we are naturally. Yeah. Well, so you and I both are all about purpose. And, and in the case of the caring economy and in your work, it's the blending of the purpose and profit. Um, I, I like to say, I often cite Larry Fink, who a couple of years ago in his stakeholders letter said, you know, purpose and profit are inextricably linked. And I, I believe that. But I wonder, um, just sticking with your upbringing for a second, how do you, if, if you're not of means or privilege, how do you, how do you get to that point of focusing on purpose? Because I'm sure you do a lot of coaching of young people who don't have the same opportunities that you had, but you're still helping them find their purpose. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I think there are more opportunities today than there have ever been before, which is a great thing to access this, what I call social good infrastructure, at least in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, you know, tr traditionally philanthropy and what we consider to be sort of social impact, most people were priced out of that infrastructure. It was too expensive, it was too costly, it was too, kind, too time consuming, and it was just inaccessible. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it was reserved for the sort of gala cocktail party, right? And you needed to be, you know, you know purchase a $5,000 ticket to go to one of those galas and schmooze with the right group of people. And, you know, and it was a very, elite um and and i would say mostly fake endeavor <laughs> i don't think those people were necessarily concerned necessarily with doing good it was more about you know uh, being charitable as a social status mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that that mentality has changed significantly significantly in the last i would say 20 years um you know particularly in the last 10 years but really in the last 20 years philanthropy it means literally means lover of humanity philo and anthropy is lover of humanity and anybody should be able to love their fellow man or, or woman, right? We should all be able to love our brothers and sisters, and we should all be able to access this philanthropic infrastructure, whether it's starting a B Corp or starting a nonprofit or having a debt donor advised fund 
mm-hmm. um, you know, or having a fiscally sponsored project or community foundation or donating or volunteering. I mean, even just now, some of the things I mentioned are brand new. Donor advised funds really didn't come about till 2006. And now they've grown 300% over the last 10 years. There's 750,000 DAFs in the country now. Uh, community foundations, fiscal sponsorships didn't really explode until the 90s and 2000s. Now there's hundreds of thousands of fiscally sponsored projects across the country. Um, B corporations are fairly new, right? So there's all this new infrastructure that's been proliferated to try to democratize philanthropy. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And my advice to anyone who's interested is that it is accessible today. You just need to know where to look. Mm -hmm. But also you have to, I think, do a little bit of homework and just go inside yourself and figure out what is your purpose? What is it that you really care that passionately about that you would want to just show up at an organization or for a cause, but then to the next level you're describing, Dominic, actually start a a charitable effort, an organization, uh, 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 a movement, so to speak. So how do you how do you how do you deal with that very basic question from a young person or even a, a disillusioned older person about hmm, I've got to find my purpose? What do you suggest I do? Uh, yeah, so it's a great question. I think I do think almost everybody I interact with, and and granted, there's a bias there because of the world that I'm in. But almost everybody I interact with has a cause or a passion that they care about. Mm-hmm. I, I would venture to say most people do, whether they've been personally affected by something or they're just passionate about it, right? So I love dogs, for example. Uh, I just love dogs. I have a beautiful dog. I grew up with dogs. And so I'm a donor, not only to the ASPCA, but I'm also a donor to something called Best Friends Animal Society, which is the largest no-kill animal shelter in California, I believe the United States now. And, you know, there's no particular reason I love dogs. I just do. <laughs> and, and it's been personal to me my entire life. And when I talk to people and I get into this question with them, I would say everybody has an answer and, and, and the answers may surprise you. I've asked people, what's, what are you personally passionate about? And I hear answers from, you know, oh, my mother had Parkinson's. So I'm very passionate about Parkinson's research all the way to, I asked somebody the question. They said, I, my great grandfather was from Greece. I love Greek literature and Greek mythology. And I want to create an organization to teach American kids about Greek mythology. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so very sort of, outlier answers. And so everybody does have something they're passionate about. And I would venture to say that if you look inside yourself, you ask yourself that question, if you could do anything you wanted for the rest of your life and money was no object, what would you care about? Yep. And, and no one's going to say, I want to work at a bank. <laughs> no one's going to say that. They're going to tell you what they're passionate about. They're going to give you an honest answer. And that is, I'm not telling everyone to drop, you know, quit their job and pursue that, but that is ultimately what they're passionate about. And there are opportunities if people want to get involved in those areas, I, I guarantee it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think as a sort of a silver lining, if there can be one in COVID, we've also been able to have forced introspection or some introspection about our own purposes and what we're doing. So I'm with you there. I also share your love of animals. I, you've given me a perfect opportunity for the first time on the show to do a shout out to Jackie and Scrubs, my two rescue Jack Russells. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my organization is the Humane Society of the United States, but I share your, your empathy there. Uh, so this is, this is the, the fodder for the launching of uh, thegiving.org. Tell us a little bit about, as you're coming out of all this experience, all this shaping, the values of the grandparents and life experience, your next iteration then became launching, founding, uh, giving.org. What, how did that happen? Yeah, so after, you know, uh, you know, after several years of, of being a global philanthropy group and really running these 
phenomenal philanthropic organizations, I noticed a significant problem in the philanthropic sector. And this actually goes back to what we talked about earlier about being priced out of social good infrastructure. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, I developed a pretty good reputation in, in my field. And so a lot of people would contact me and say, hey, Dom, can you help me start my nonprofit? And I would have to explain to them, well, sure, but it's going to take you six to eight months and it's going to cost you $50,000. Oh, and by the way, if you want to be compliant in all 50 jurisdictions, there's over 250 documents that you need to file. Mm -hmm. And most people just stunned because, you know, America is very unique, as we know. And in most of the world, it doesn't, it's nowhere near that, right? I mean, to start a nonprofit in the UK, it's a couple of weeks and it doesn't cost you $50,000. That is a uniquely American way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And it's because much like everything else in America, we have put the profit motive ahead of everything else, including in our healthcare industry, but also in our nonprofit industry, which is sort of a paradox because the word nonprofit is in fact a profit-making industry. And so the more people that asked me, and, and not only, by the way, people that didn't have money, wealthy people were shocked when I would tell them this. Yeah. I had calls from pretty, pretty big entertainers and celebrities, and they would say, well, I really wanted, I'm really passionate about this. How quickly can you get my nonprofit up? And I would say, probably not for at least four to six months in the quickest possible way. And by the way, it's going to cost you at least $25,000. That is the minimum, minimum, minimum to do everything. And they were just stunned. And so the more I sort of got into this, the more I realized there's a fundamental problem here. And the philanthropic market in the United States is very, very, very large. I mean, there was a poll that Gallup put out several years ago. And in that poll, 86% of the 83 million millennials, just millennials in that survey, said they wanted to start or run a nonprofit at some point during their lifetime. So you have almost universal demand for nonprofits, and there's 1.7 million nonprofits in the country already. So massive, massive marketplace and a huge demand, and yet there was this fundamental problem. The cost, labor, and time of starting, running, and operating a nonprofit is prohibitive for most people. So I came up with this solution, uh, a product effectively, that could reduce about 98% of the cost, labor, and time of starting a nonprofit. I took this concept to the former director of the IRS, told me it was very interesting, took it to the head of McKinsey's nonprofit consulting division, who said also very, very smart. He actually came in as an investor. He was our first investor in the company. And I went out from there and I raised several million dollars in venture capital financing and built a company called uh, uh, Giving. And the URL is uh, gpg.org. And effectively, I think the best way to describe it is, is that Forbes did a very nice series of articles on us. And they called us the Shopify for nonprofits. So imagine if Shopify not only incorporated uh, not, excuse me, not only gave you your digital infrastructure as they do now, but they also incorporated your company for you, did your taxes, opened up a bank account and did all your compliance for you. Yeah. That is essentially what giving uh, was originally created to do. And so we went out into the marketplace and we started powering thousands of nonprofit projects across the world and processing millions of dollars of philanthropic capital through our system. And basically, we were able to allow people to start these instant nonprofit projects and operate with 501c3 in a matter of seconds for 98% less the cost than the traditional way and zero paperwork filed. Um, it was completely proprietary and unique. Nobody had ever done anything like this before. And before I knew it, we were servicing clients like Richard Branson and Miley Cyrus and Val Kilmer and DNG and Burning Man and just a wonderful array of organizations and companies and thousands of others. And so you know, it was a very interesting, extraordinary experience. And we did lots of press and we got out there and held some great fundraisers for our clients. We did a fundraiser uh, last year for um, with Snoop Dogg and Chris Martin and my buddy Ted's house to benefit one of our clients. We did one the year before for Val Kilmer, which was very fun. 
uh, the year before Miley Cyrus did a big concert, powered through our system. Uh, Richard Branson held a big uh, uh, concert series in Venezuela, which raised about $3.2 million, all on giving in the span of about three days. So it was just extraordinary. And so this philanthropic capital wouldn't have existed without giving, just point blank wouldn't have existed. And that was the benefit. So uh, Richard Branson in Venezuela reminds me, uh, how does the model apply outside the US? I know um, it's very, it's much more complicated if you want to go to more than one country to do fundraising and reporting. So how, how does the model work non for non-US residents or citizens? So all the nonprofit projects are basically incorporated in the United States, mm -hmm. but you can fundraise and operate globally. So we were able to fundraise throughout the world. The vast majority of that $3 million that was raised by Richard Branson's team was actually raised from South America, Central America, and Europe. Um, and it was, as you said, to benefit the situation in Venezuela during the uh, sort of coup or civil war a couple of years ago between the, uh, the dictator there and uh, the opposition. Um, and so, yeah, we had about, um, I think it was 86,000 individual donor transactions from around the world that were each being processed through our system, about 1,200 donations per minute that were being translated from foreign currencies into US dollars, and then everybody was getting their immediate tax receipts. Uh, it was an amazing experience, and we actually subsequently found out it was one of the largest crowdfunding campaigns that had ever been done in South America. So very, very fun experience. Um, and so that was our model for the first couple of years of the company. More recently, what happened is there's been a growth, a, a huge explosion of DAFs. I mentioned this earlier. A DAF means a donor-advised fund. There's been about a 300% increase in DAFs um, in the United States. And there's around 750,000 DAFs now in the United States with around $160, $170 billion of assets within the DAF market. And most people are looking to DAFs in order to uh, sort of simply set up their initial philanthropic infrastructure. So we said, hey, let's take advantage of this. We started basically pivoting to more of being a DAF provider. And now what we're doing is we're working with banks and credit unions um, <clears throat> in order to provide a DAF infrastructure for, those, for the clients of those organizations and mm -hmm. also working with um, companies like private companies mm -hmm. and allowing them to create, uh, or I should say offering that DAF infrastructure for the employees of these companies. Like and so it's an interesting model. It's very interesting. And I know mm -hmm. you have some great um, Sage Council. We were brought together by our mutual friend, Julian Leone, who's on your board, um, who's awesome, the Goldman Sachs. I mean, in terms of governance, it's everything, right? In philanthropy in particular, you have to be squeaky clean. So I know you've got good uh, advice, counsel coming in there. Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you keep it that way as you grow? Do you have, I, I bet you have to turn away some business from time to time. Yeah. So I want to say Julian is amazing. Shout out to Julian. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we've turned around, we've turned down lots of business. You know, everybody has their philanthropic cause. Everybody has something they're passionate about. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the regulations haven't kept up with it. Sometimes people want to do, you know, rehabilitation through, uh, you know, psychedelic substances or marijuana. I mean, you know, we cannot risk the entire infrastructure of the company to do that. I make no moral judgments on it, but we just simply can't risk the regulatory approvals in order to do that. So we certainly have um, we certainly we certainly have turned down business in the past. That's right. So again, ladies and gentlemen, today on the Caring Economy, we have as our guest Dominic Combs, who is the president and founder of Giving.org. Dominic, you're now also on to something new. You've got a new venture going on. Can you talk a little bit about it today for our guests? Um, sure, I uh, I'd be happy to. So. 
Yeah, I was the um, CEO. So I founded Giving in 2016. I was the CEO of the company up until about a year ago, um, where I stepped out of the op daily operational role as CEO in, in order to be the president of the company and, and remain on the board of directors. And the reason I stepped out is because I saw massive, massive opportunity in the donation market. So the, the US donor market is very, very large. Around $450 billion of donations went to US nonprofits last year. Um, but the problem is, and COVID has made this significantly worse, Gallup put out a study at the end of 2020. They said the percentage of Americans that donate to charity and the average donation amount are down significantly to the point where they're near all-time lows. So the percentage of Americans that donate to charity is down about 11.5% from a decade ago. And the average donation amount is down about 7%. And so what you have is effectively less people donating, donating less on average. And you know, some of that is as a result of COVID and some of it is just trends that have been happening in the, in the donor market for the last few years, frankly, because the donor market is very saturated. Um, Americans give away, if you think about it like this, Americans give away more than $1 billion per day in the United States, right? There's, there's $450 billion a year and there's 365 days a year. So you're giving away more than a billion dollars a day. It's unbelievable. And Americans are very philanthropic. The average donor gives $1,050 a year. But nonetheless, we saw this problem and we created this very, very unique solution. Um, we actually created, you know, it, it's an extraordinary unique solution. We are under stealth mode at the moment, so I'm not able to get into the specifics of what it is, mm -hmm. but it's a solution that allows people to donate more money than they wouldn't ordinarily be able to donate without coming out of pocket additional capital right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very unique. No one's ever done this before. And we have the backers of some wonderful investors and financial institutions working with us. Can you say the name or when it might launch? Or... Sure, yeah. The name is called U-Pledge, U-Pledge. Um, and the company is in the product building phase right now. And we anticipate getting our product into market in time for the quote-unquote giving season uh, of this year, which is November, December. We're aiming for getting it out by Giving Tuesday, which is in the latter portion of November. Yeah. And do, um, are you taking on any additional investors for those in our audience who might want to be in touch? Um, thank you. I appreciate that. We, we are just at the tail end of our round right now. Um, there's a small portion open. We initially decided we wanted to raise 3.5 million, uh, excuse me, 3 million. We had a request to open it up another 500K um, by one of our investors. So we did. And uh, we have most of that round closed now. It was opened about six weeks ago. So it's quite a quick, quite a quick raise. Um, and this is truly a philanthropic product that has never been built before that has the tremendous potential to unlock billions and billions of dollars of liquidity. And as a sort of final point, I'll tell you, some of the largest nonprofits in the country have already signed on to join our beta. Um, and that's very exciting because we've gotten sort of our product validated at the highest levels of this industry, including some very, very big name brand nonprofits that, you know, you certainly would know, Toby, and so would your listeners. So um, if anybody is interested, you know, certainly get in touch and I'd be happy to talk through it with you. Mm -hmm. And for not just for investment purposes, but I know you do a lot of public speaking and are uh, involved in various um, philanthropic organizations. Uh, how does one reach out to you through Twitter or what, what's the best way to solicit yeah I, I appreciate that i am involved in some great initiatives we we're recently working with ahmaud arbery's family the young man that was killed in georgia mm -hmm. setting up a foundation for his family to keep his legacy alive and fight for racial justice um, i was involved in some of the me too work and uh, i've done quite a bit of work in i actually started something called ncovid19.org and we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase ppe distributed throughout the united states so very active in the philanthropic industry in general um, but if you'd like to get in touch you can just email me 
at uh, Calms, K-A-L-M-S, Dominic, D-O-M-I-N-I-C, at gmail.com. Or you can email me at Dominic, D-O-M-I-N-I-C, at u-pledge.com. That's probably the best way. Or reach out on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn as well. And there's that great transparency all over again and good governance. So, uh, Dom, uh, just a couple more minutes. Again, ladies and gentlemen, today we have as our guest um, the founder and C former CEO, now president of Giving.org, as well as the founder of a soon-to-be-launched startup, uh, also in the philanthropic space around pledging, or, sorry, about donor-oriented. Uh, Dominic, let's shift a bit to the corporate sector. You'd mentioned earlier that um, you've done a lot with corporations um, providing sometimes sort of what I would describe as private label solutions on the back end. The role of business and society, which is the whole gist of my podcast and my book, um, I wonder uh, what you, you say there. I, I've read some of your writings in Forbes. I believe you said um, corporations can't afford to solve some of humanity's biggest problems. I agree with you. Um, perhaps it's easier for us to say than to do, but um, what say you about that in the role of business in solving these issues? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I was actually going to mention I did an op-ed recently in Forbes where I sort of made the argument that corporate giving in America is very anemic compared to corporate profits. Um, so when you look at the breakdown of giving, right, as I mentioned, $450 billion was donated to charities last year. 72% of that came from individuals like you and I. So 72% comes out of our pockets. Um, and about 20% comes from foundations. So Board Foundation, Gates Foundation, you can kind of think of it like that. And also, um, you know, DAFs and other vehicles and so forth. 6%, only about 6% of all giving comes from corporations. So we like to, you know, corporate America has become woke, as they say lately, and, and they're all virtue signaling all, all over the place. But when you sort of peel behind the curtain, do they put their money where their mouth is? The answer is no, they don't. Um, so you may sort of turn on the news and hear, oh, such and such corp company is, is committing $100 million to community reinvestment and so forth. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. But a lot of it is, 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 is hollow PR. Mm -hmm. And I have no problem saying this because when you look at the numbers, it's clear. I mean, 6% is not good mm -hmm. compared to corporate profits in this country. So I think corporations have an enormous role to play. And my central thesis and argument is, you know, corporations exist for one reason and one reason only to maximize shareholder value. That was the traditional model of a corporation. But as we shift the dynamic of what's important in America, and we shift our understanding of how important it is to protect our planet and our world and our fellow citizens, corporations have an expanded role to play in that narrative. Because I always say, what good is it if a corporation is maximizing profits for shareholders if the community in which they operate is extremely distressed? Mm -hmm. Right. They, they, you know, people can't afford to live. People can't afford to eat. There's hunger, there's starvation, there's homelessness. The plant, you know, there's flooding every couple of weeks because of global warming and whatever. The point is they have a role to play and it's in their best interest mm -hmm. to play that role as a as a as a responsible corporate citizen. Um, and that's the argument I make. So I, I do think that is the case. And I think corporations need to step up significantly. I'm so with you. Um, I also know you mentioned earlier your work with Burning Man as someone who's been to Burning Man a few times myself. I love the principles there about, you know, community and thinking about these bigger issues and then acting on it, doing things that are sort of uplifting, but practical and really values based. Um, I, I want sort of a, a final thought from you. I just wonder um, what's next, not necessarily for you per se, you've got your, your new brand, your new company launching, but for us as a 
just stick with the U.S. for now. What's next for us? Do you think now with the verdict coming out of Minneapolis this week and with still more sad deaths happening, uh, have we turned a corner? Are we, are we seeing a new renaissance, if you will, of responsible businesses and, and communities? Or is it going to be repetitive, do you think? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I will say, so, so I think it's a great question. I think my answer would be that we're in an interesting time right now. I kind of liken it to the cultural revolution in China. Mm. Uh, I think we're going through a cultural revolution in the United States. And, and, and as many things that start out good in this country, we, uh, we go, we go oftentimes too far. <laughs> and, mm. and, you know, I mean, and then what happens is because you go too far, things fizzle out. So these things start as very well-intentioned. I mean, think about, for example, Occupy Wall Street. We don't hear about that anymore. It was a great well-intentioned thing. They went very extreme with let's you know, destroy the banks and bankers are evil people and so forth. And then it, it fizzled out. Uh, think about the Me Too movement started out very with, with, with fantastic intentions. They went, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say that movement in some sense got co-opted in certain areas, went very far in certain areas. We hear much less about it today. And I don't want to see that happen today with what's going on in the country, because the need for reconciling uh, with our racial history in particular in this country, it, it, you know, we need to do that. And I don't think most people truly understand the plight of a lot of our fellow citizens and what their ancestors had to go through. And I certainly didn't understand it until I physically went to South Carolina myself and went to the slave quarters and actually educated myself as a grown up. I mean, I, I learned about it as a child, certainly as an immigrant to this country, I learned about it, but didn't really understand it. And then I went and actually educated myself. I took a trip to South Carolina to learn the history history. Um, and it opened my eyes. I learned about Gullah and I learned about some of the experiences. I went to the plantations and I really saw that. Um, and I got some sense of that understanding. And so, as I mentioned, now I'm involved in some civil rights organizations. I've worked with Lee Merritt, the national civil rights attorney and some others um, on some great initiatives, including helping set up the uh, Ahmaud Arbery Foundation. Um, so my answer to you is, I hope it doesn't fizzle out. And I hope we don't go too extreme because I think that I think most Americans want to do the right thing. I think most Americans want to atone for the past sins of the country. And I hope we can create some sort of sustainable movement that allows people to feel, uh, you know, valued as American citizens. And I hope it doesn't fizzle out. I mean, that would be my hope. Yeah, here, here, I, I agree. I also think, you know, going back to your tech experience, that's one of the differentiators this time around, I'd like to believe. Um, we are now seeing, you don't have to get on a plane to go to the Carolinas to see the slave experience. We can see these police killings actually on cameras. And so we have to stay vigilant. We have to work hard. We have to be, I think, really um, do deep listening. And uh, I'm committed to it. That's why on the caring economy, I like to have these conversations because it's part of my commitment to trying to, to not forget the George Floyds, the Breonna Taylors, and to try and make that difference. So I can't thank you enough, Dominic Palms, for joining us today on The Caring Economy. I'll let you have the last word. Anything you'd like to say to our audience around the world? Well, I just want to say thank you, Toby, for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Julian, my friend, for helping connect everybody. And uh, yeah, I look forward to sharing more with you all about my new company, You Pledge, in the coming months, and maybe being on again at some future date to discuss more. Absolutely. Welcome back anytime. Thanks, Dominic.